morning, everyone. Welcome to our class on nurturing a vision for gospel-centered marriage. It is Sunday, April 28th. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for this wonderful institution of marriage that is not only uh, good and wonderful for our souls and for the earth, but it reveals the glory of Jesus' love for his church. It reveals so much. So give us clear, humble thinking together. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin with this question. So uh, there's sort of a new handout crafted for today. Much, much of it's in the older handout, but I hope you've got this guy. Let's start with a, a, this question this morning. It's really a principle that you will never be happily married to another person until you're first happily married to Jesus. And let me unpack that for a minute and tell you where it came from. It came from praying for my daughter. Janice and I have a 27-year-old daughter. She'd like to be married someday. And as I pray for her, my first prayer is that the Lord would give her contentment in singleness. Right? Give her contentment in singleness. The best posture in which to seek a spouse is you're content in your singleness, lest you be driven in desperation, sort of to find the, next, the, the first spouse that comes along. So, Lord, give our daughter, Lara, contentment in her singleness. And, of course, what does that look like? And, and it dawned on me that one of the things it, looks like, it looked like is that she was deeply satisfied in her relationship with Jesus, that Jesus was the truest lover of her soul, that she was, in fact, happily married to Jesus. In other words, in a relationship with Jesus that was so, so soul-satisfying that she wouldn't be driven in desperation to find another man. That makes sense? And then what's, what's the next prayer that needs to follow that as I'm praying for my daughter? What about you, Mike? What about you? Are you, yourself, happily married to Jesus? Drawing from Christ alone, my ultimate sense of worth, joy, purpose, love, is Jesus the true lover of my soul, and thereby giving me a contentment in the Lord to be what I'm called to be for my wife. Because as we said in the class, Janice doesn't want to wake up every morning in terror that if she's not exactly what I want her to be, our marriage is going to fall apart. She doesn't need that pressure. And it's just not true. So the only person capable of ultimately giving you a joy, a love, a purpose that anchors you so that you're not demanding anything of another person, that person is Jesus. And as I pray that for my daughter and for myself, what am I thinking? Well, I also want Laura to find a man who is happily married to Jesus. So he doesn't do the same thing to my daughter, right? Laura, this is the kind of man you want to marry. He loves Jesus more than he loves you. And that's going to make him a very safe person to live with. Because if he's in love with Jesus, he's not going to hurt my daughter. He'll sin against her. They'll have conflict. It's not going to hurt her, right? What's Janice's safest Warranty in our marriage that I'm a man, first and foremost, deeply in love with Jesus because he loves me. So that's, that's why the question, that's why the principle 
you, you'll never be happily married to another person to, to your first happily married to Jesus because you're gonna, you're, your soul needs, you were built for love. You were built to worship something. And relationships are very powerful and you will ultimately worship a relationship, something else, or Jesus. If you're first worshiping Jesus and his love is better than life, you're now free to love your spouse, to fail them, to disappoint them, not because you want to, but it really, it really undergirds the whole thing. Any thoughts or comments on that? So spouses, you, you, you need, who are you first most happily married to? Jesus transforms you into a person who's ravishingly beautiful. What I hope for the man who's ultimately attracted to my daughter and wants to marry her is that he sees a woman who is profoundly content in her relationship with Jesus. Okay, that's the principle. So what are you doing in your relationship with Jesus to ensure that his love is better, that's David says in Psalm 63, your love is better than life itself. If that isn't the case, there'll be something in life I'm getting, I'm seeking to give my life ultimate satisfaction. And that thing is fleeting. It's per- so what if the Lord never gives my daughter a man to marry? Doesn't mean her life is worthless. It means she, in, in her singleness, she's content because she knows the deepest lover of her soul, Jesus. Saves her from desperation. I think some people do get married um, out of, they get married for a lot of reasons. Okay, that's, that's the first principle. Let's move on to the second. As we draw near to Jesus, the lover of our souls, what does he give us as we draw near to him? He creates a repentant heart. So you can't, you can't see Jesus without seeing your own sin. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you, you realize, I am unlike Jesus. And I say that with a smile on my face, because I believe the gospel. When I discover sin, it isn't to condemn me. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin as an act of the love of Jesus to show us there's a better way to live. Sin is bad for us, it's bad for our relationships. And sin doesn't, Jesus was condemned for my sin, so we can get into this exploration of what's wrong with us without fear of condemnation. No condemnation now, I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head. Right? Last verse of N. Can it be? So we draw near to Jesus, he gives us a repentant heart. Jesus loves me so much, how can I not repent of my sins? They're in the front to him. My sin is sitting on the lap of Jesus, safe and secure, and slapping him in the face. That's what my sin is. It should grieve me. Break me. I'll bring about repentance. He gives us the fear of the Lord. That isn't cowering in terror. It's a, it's a respect that says, oh, I don't want to do anything that brings uh, no, nothing but joy to, to the heart of my Savior. That's the fear of the Lord. It's a delight to please Him, to walk in His ways, to reveal His glory. He gives us a healthy suspicion of our own motives. In our relationships, we are often, if not always, motivated for our own glory. You get near to Jesus, He exposes that. He shows you that. Ah, that was about your glory, not mine. That was for your benefit, not your spouse's. That was about you. You said that. You didn't do that. You're avoiding this. For you, the Lord is pleased to show us these things. This is a sign of health. 
He gives us a picture of, of what he wants for our spouse over against what we may want, because left to myself in the flesh, my picture of what I want my spouse to be is self-serving. So what am I asking, what am I, what am I, what is this calling for here? Self-awareness. Self-awareness. The only place to get true, accurate self-awareness is in the presence of Jesus. And of course, he immediately the presence to us in his word. The revelation of who he is. And in others. And in our spouse. So his grace bends our heart into Christ-likeness. This is a fairly long quote, but it's very helpful from Paul Tripp's book on marriage entitled, What Were You Expecting? <laughs> Isn't that just great? What were you expecting? <laughs> Did you get married to battle sin together? Did you get married to ask someone into your junk and brokenness? <clears throat> Did you get married to, to be exposed <laughs> in all the nakedness of your sin? Is that why you got married? Well, that's what's going to happen. <clears throat> so here's what Tripp writes. Grace gives your marriage a lifetime warranty. What this means is that God will give you everything you need to be what you're supposed to be and do what he's called you to do in your marriage. Right? And whatever we need for this is sufficient in the grace of Christ for us. But you must do it. His grace enables, reconciles, restores, repairs. His grace teaches you and changes you. His grace gives you what you need to ask forgiveness and to forgive. His grace empowers you to overlook minor offenses and target what is truly important. His grace helps you see yourself with greater and greater accuracy and respond to what you see with greater and greater wisdom. His grace gives you strength to continue when you feel like quitting. His grace gives you the power to resist temptation and turn to do what is right. <clears throat> His grace rescues you from your obsession with self-love and welcomes you to the joyous work of loving another. His grace enables you to be good and angry at the same time. When grace works, a commitment to God's kingdom and righteousness in your heart, you will be angry at what sin does to you and to the situations in which you live, and that anger will motivate you to be a tool of change. Hence his other book, Instruments in the Hands of the Redeemer. His grace causes you to be committed to giving grace. So here's the principle. You can't give away what you don't have. If, you're, if our relationships, not just marriage, our friendships, our relationships work on grace, and you don't have grace, it, they're not going to work. So what's the most important thing I can do for the health and benefit of my marriage? Be a grace getter. Be starved for grace. And we get that through the means of grace. Worship, Sunday school classes, fellowship in our home groups, Bible study, prayer, I think witnessing is a means of grace because when you're telling other people of Jesus, there's something in your soul that confirms that it's true. The sacraments. So think of your heart as desperately needing to be filled with grace. Don't do conflict resolution. Don't make major plans. Don't insist on your own way if your heart isn't filled to overflowing with grace. So grace protects you from hurting the other person. Can't give away what you don't have. Your marriage needs grace, grace, grace. Uh, preached on marriage one time and called it the Great Grace Splash Party. Two people seeking grace, that grace overflowing from their hearts. And the nature of grace is wherever grace goes, what does it do? It always abounds to other people. Grace isn't just about me. 
Grace is to come to my heart and like a bouncy ball, bounce out so that what I'm receiving from Jesus, his kindness, his compassion, his love, his patience, that is meant to spill out onto other people around me. So right, I've got to tell you this story. Right after I preached on this, our church in Lynchburg had a, what was it, a talent show or something? And this group of people did this skit. And they all came dressed in white robes, and they came into the side to the front of the auditorium, and they were all squirting water out of their mouths, and they called it the Great Grace Splash Party. They were kind of making fun of my sermon, but they were splashing <laughs> water out of their mouths. Okay, I asked for it. <clears throat> Can't give away what you don't have. Just if, if, if you're not sure, ask your spouse. Hey, do I, am I filled with grace right now? When do you sense I'm not filled with grace? Just ask them. The desire to not ask means your heart's not filled with grace. As a rule. <laughs> Number three. We're sort of continuing down this intimacy track, and this is what the Lord has in mind when he says the two, become, two will become one flesh. That's really about heart intimacy. And remember how, we, how, how sad we said it was when if, if you attempt intimacy and you don't have the right tools and you hurt each other and you disappoint each other and that isn't resolved, people throw up walls of self-protection and most marriages end up people just bouncing off of each other's walls of self-protection. They never get the openness, the closeness, the oneness, the sharingness that God intends for the relationship. That our relationships are to mirror the oneness of Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in utter and perfect unity with each other. And mirror Christ's union with his church. But most people bounce off of each other's walls of self-protection. You hurt me, that's never going to happen again. And it is painful to be hurt in relationship. It is very painful. And we are, to some degree, and understandably, self-protective. But, but, so ask yourself, are we just bumping off of each other's walls of self-protection? So here's a, here's a thought on intimacy. It's from Mike Mason's book, The Mystery of Marriage. Anybody familiar with it? I mentioned, well, I mentioned Paul Tripp's book. I mentioned Larry Crabb's book, I think, a week ago. His, Larry Crabb's Christian counselor, is more of a, the marriage builder, is more of a how-to. Mike Mason's is more of a why. So if you're sort of philosophical, and, so Mike Mason's book, The Mystery of Marriage, this is a stunningly helpful and convicting quote for me from that book on intimacy. He writes, It is not intimacy itself which is so distasteful, but rather the moral condemnation that comes with it. People crave closeness with one another, but are repelled by the sin that such closeness inevitably uncovers in themselves the selfish motives that are unmasked, the pettiness that spills out, the monstrous new image of self that emerges as it struggles so pitifully to have its own way. Dude, that is just spot on. Do you know that in your own experience? You had no idea what it was going to be like putting two sinners under one roof, but what that does is it exposes sin. And so you either come to grips with this new image of yourself as a sinner and run to Jesus and get that grace, or you deny it and hide it and, and, and uh, attack the other person because of it. That's not a good situation. Discovering your own inadequacy, 
not having the guts to deal with it or the grace to deal with it and attacking the other person as a result, that's a lot of marriages. And again, walls of self-protection. <clears throat> so, that means once you are married for a season, you will discover a new self, a new way of seeing what you are really like. In other words, you wake up and realize, oh, I didn't marry myself. <laughs> I mean, right? We all really want ourselves to be like us because we generally like, generally like ourselves the way we are. And marriage is this tool where God begins to break that down. Oh, you have no idea. <laughs> There's a lot that needs to be changed. Sanctification. So can you embrace your own contributions to the stress of the relationship? Honestly and humbly crying out in repentance for Jesus to change you, admitting your failures to your spouse. What does humility say? I need to change more than I know. What does humility say? I'm more proud than I am. What does humility say? I'm not as humble as I think I am. All of those are discoveries that come as you pursue intimacy in marriage. If you just want to have a business relationship where you sleep in the same house, you raise the same kids, you go off to work, and you never get intimacy, then you may not discover this, but that's not what God intends for our marriage. He says the two become one flesh, one person, sharing dreams, goals, desires, fears, failures, inadequacies. So will you pray, Lord, save my marriage or my friendships from me? Save my marriage from me. Don't let my pride ruin our relationship. Don't allow my selfishness to harm our relationship. That's a prayer of somebody drawing near to Jesus. You know you're drawing near to Jesus in grace, near to his cross, and you go, oh my goodness, because Jesus reveals these false images of self. Jesus reveals our sin, our pettiness, our selfishness. Jesus wants to break down this monstrous new image of self that emerges. <laughs> And he's making you in his own image. And you want to be married to a person who is bearing the beautiful image of Jesus. Because Jesus is ravishingly gorgeous. What is that? Is that the elevator? <coughs> Number four. In what ways does your pride manifest itself, particularly in your marriage? Do you know that? So what are, the, what are you regularly asking the Lord to change? You know, my pride, it's going to be different for different people. But I'll, I'll give you a couple suggestions. Crit are you critical? Do you have a critical spirit? Well, I mean, when you get married, you're going to find a lot to criticize. It's, it'll be there. It's easy. Three dog night, easy to be hard. Anybody remember that song? Terry, bail me out, man. Three dog night, easy to be hard? Late, late 60s? Anybody remember that one? You're too young. <laughs> it's easy to be critical um, demanding demanding inflexible it's got to be done this way <laughs> and, and look one of the questions I ask young couples doing premarriage counseling is what is the impact on your upbringing on the way you do marriage and there's usually positive and negative 
And you, you're going to you're going to imitate, you're going to model the way you were raised. If you have no other reason to question it, you're going to model it. So you bring two people under one roof, probably different ways of doing things, and you're going to have conflict. <laughs> My way or the highway? Do you have unrealistic expectations? Are you manip manipulative? That's ultimately born of pride. Are you fundamentally focused on the other or focused on yourself? Do you have to be right? Do you have to be in control? Do you have to be like? These are the three big idols. Uh, the need to be right, the, need, the desire, and the idols are not just a need, but they're an in, insistence on. In control, or being like, this is the pleaser, the approval sucks, this is the person who needs approval, the person who uh, goes crazy if they lose control, this is the person who has to be right. Your heart is plagued with one of those principally, predominantly. It might depend on the situation, it might depend on the relationship. There are times when this idol clicks in, but fundamentally you were born, and these things are good things that are too much. It's, it's good to be right. It's good to have control over certain things. It's okay to want to be liked. We're born being loved by God. But idols are taking a good thing and making it, that's the thing I have to have to be intact. So you need to be fighting one of the, you, know, you need to know what this idol is, your spouse needs to know what that idol is, so they can pray for you, and then when that idol begins to get the better of the situation, you can go, ah, ding, 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 idol alert. That's my approval, Miss Chang, and it isn't good for this situation. Let's find a better way to do this. So are you regularly repenting of your idols? These are some of the big three. They're manifestations of pride. Uh, are you defensive? Do you resist correction? I, mean, I, can, I can feel physically something happen in me when, when, when my wife challenges me on something. And she's never ugly, she's never rude. And does she have a right to challenge me on something? Of course. Because what we want for the relationship is what God wants. And if I'm pursuing something, and it isn't what God wants, she ought to, she has an obligation to for the Lord to challenge me. So that we're all on the same page in terms of what the Lord wants. But do you get defensive? Have you created a situation where you can't be challenged? Do you have to win the argument? When I do premier's counseling, I say, see this scoreboard of one arguments? See the scoreboard? Me, her. It doesn't exist in heaven. You're not going to get to heaven and go, 62 to 3, I beat her in all those arguments. It doesn't exist. God doesn't give a hoot about how many arguments you win. What he cares about is how you love each other selflessly. And that might mean knowing you've won the argument and shutting your mouth. Might mean that for the sake of the relationship. I was doing premarriage counseling on Friday with a couple in Virginia. None of you know these people. And uh, we were talking about conflict resolution, and we will get to that in the class. We'll do a lot on conflict resolution. Because frankly, it's the only thing that ruins marriages, is unresolved conflict. You can't have a good marriage. If you can resolve conflict, you can't have a good marriage. And so we talked about conflict relation styles, and it came out that 
his style was to go into lawyer mode and win the argument. She says, yeah, that's when he takes me to court. <laughs> she says, you're taking me to court. It's just like she's in a courtroom, and he's a lawyer. Here's all the reasons I'm right. Here's all the reasons you're wrong. <laughs> you don't want to be taken to court by your spouse. You want to resolve conflict in a way that is deferring, honoring to Christ, full of love and grace. <laughs> right? He takes me to court. Guilty. Long time ago, when we had disagreements, I would realize I'm losing, not admit it, and divert it to, I don't like the way you're talking about this. I don't know if you remember that. That's how I never confessed that to you. And that's just awful. That's just awful. Awful. Clamming up. You know you're wrong, so... And that, in the same couple that I spoke to Friday in my living room in Virginia, she said, that's what I did. She just shuts down. Oh, not talking about it. Oh, that's also pride. Okay. We will spend a lot of time on conflict resolution. Arabs refusing to discuss. So I'm just teasing out some ways that pride affects our marriages. <clears throat> There's, I probably left, left off 20 other things. Number five. Do you know why intimacy is difficult? So again, we're going down these rails towards intimacy station. The posture of Adam and Eve after the fall is revealing of the loss of intimacy. Sin had introduced some devastating factors into the relationship equation. Now I'm going to borrow here from Adam Motier. He's a British evangelical. He's written a fabulous book on the Old Testament called Look to the Rock. His work in Genesis is stunningly majestic. You're going to see it in just a second. But remember what we said a couple weeks ago. Relationships were designed by God to work in the Garden of Eden, and they were designed to work with no sin. They weren't designed to work on sin. Sin was an unhealthy, abnormal, abhorrent intrusion into paradise. And, and I've taught you this before in other sermons, and we, I think we said it in this class, I'll just repeat it. There's a principle in force from creation, from before the fall, that for life to work, something must be killed. In other words, when God said, don't eat of that tree, he set up a principle, and that is, for life to work as I've made it, you must thwart any inclination to disobey me. Any inclination. If that's killed, life's going to work. Serpent comes in line, they should have killed the serpent. When Eve started to believe the lie, Adam said, let's kill that lie. If life's going to work, something must be killed. Anything that thwarts the truth of God, that compromises the presence of God, that is self-assertive without the rule of God, that should be killed. That principle is still enforced now that we're outside of Eden, and even more so because sin now is ruining relationships. I think we used the image a few weeks ago that left unchecked, sin will ruin your relationship like letting a pound of air out of your car tire once a week. After 30 weeks, you're flat. Got to deal with sin. Got to deal with it. We can deal with sin because we have this big Savior who loves us. More on that in a second. So, here's what Motier says as he reflects on the fall and the results of the sin entering the world. Their openness is replaced by a secretive awareness of self and a desire to retire from the other, to hide and retreat, seeking protection from the gaze of the other. Once they were joint sides of the same reality, now two separate realities 
They see the world on the basis of sin and disobedience instead of good and obedience. So now it sins in the world. It's really different. See, the right are hiding, hiding from each other. You can't have intimacy if you're hiding. And we're going to talk about why we hide, which is shame, in a minute. Number two, moral, this is motir, the results of the fall. Moral perceptions are clouded so that self-centered values overrule God-centered values. That's the way you were born. That's the way I was born. This is the doctrine of total depravity. We are born with self-centered values ruling our hearts. It is a miracle that God changes that heart and gives it a desire for God-centered values. That's a miracle. Are, is a relationship going to work where two people are pursuing self-centered values? Is it going to work? No, you're going to kill each other. Or address, <coughs> disappoint, and bump, up, bump off of each other's walls of self-protection the rest of your life. And not reveal what God wants revealed in the relationship. He says they acknowledge their sin, but they fail to come to grips with the seriousness of sin. Here's the evidence according to Motier. They should have begged God to banish them from the garden. See, here God comes to find them in the cool of the day. Where are you? First question, 10, 10 o'clock, thank you. First question asked in the history of the world as far as we know, as far as we know, where are you? And God knows where they are. It's not for his benefit, it's for theirs. He wants to draw them out of hiding. But the fact that when God shows up, they should have said, oh my goodness, we've sinned. You should banish us from your presence. You're too holy. We're not. That they didn't do that shows you how sin works to lie and deceive us about its seriousness. Make it, let's transfer that to marriage. Unless you're serious about the destructive nature of sin, you're not going to have the intimacy God wants you to have. Because that sin will be working clandestinely so that you're seeking to rule it for your self-centered values, whatever that looks like. And it can look like a lot of different things. Isn't that interesting? Never occurred to me that they should have begged God to ban them from the presence if they took sin seriously. In marriage, it should say, there are ten, reasons, ten million reasons why my wife should, should reject me. All my sins. She has a million reasons. Why. So it's a miracle that she stayed with me 40 years. I mean, it's really true. I've not only given her those reasons, but there are reasons she doesn't even know about that she should reject me. What a picture of grace when couples stay together. Right? Sometimes divorce is necessary. That's a different subject for a different day. Number three, they're naturally afraid of God. Their best friend, God, has become their enemy. And in their guilt, they now have something to prove. I still belong here. So when you got married, or when you ever planned to get married, what is the thing you'll be tempted to prove? It might come back to one of these things. I'm likable, I'm strong, I'm in control, or I'm right. But we didn't have premarital counseling. And I think we suffered as a result because I didn't enter marriage with a, with a good working relationship, and we were kind of baby Christians, so I didn't know what a big sinner I was. That's not good for the relationship. I'm always encouraged to do premarriage counseling with couples that have come from a Christian home or have been in good churches or have walked with the Lord for a number of years because they're coming into the relationship with self-awareness of their own depravity. And if Jesus is the answer to that, they've got that grace thing filling their hearts. I'm scared when that's not the case for the couple, frightened for them. 
So what is it you might have to prove? Macho man, masculine, Number four, they find their sense of identity in self-protective blame shifting rather than standing together as each other's defenders. That's what they were created for. They're fearful instead of trusting, hiding instead of protecting, blaming instead of defending, making excuses instead of taking responsibility. So where am I falling out on that scale? Trusting, protecting, defending, instead of taking responsibility. On that note of defending, one thing I ask couples to do in premarriage counseling is sort of pledge to each other. If we're in a public setting or semi-public setting, never speak disparagingly of your spouse. You see this in like Christian small groups. You know, we all know each other, and 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 sometimes couples can throw these little barbs, right? <laughs> this just never get done. You know, these little criticisms, as if it's safe to do because it's us. I I think that's out of bounds unless you have by common consent that you can do that. Don't criticize your spouse publicly. Defend them. Stand up for them. If there's something that's awry in the situation, remove yourself from the room and deal with it. That's just a little thing I think is important. Covering shame. So we've entered our marriages with shame. More sin than we know. We've, as the carpenter's saying, we've only just begun. Who knows that from? Please, somebody. Do <laughs> you know it, Lisa? <laughs> so what have we only just begun? To find out what big sinners we are. Which is either going to make the relationship better because it's going to drive us to Jesus and when Jesus shows up, there's grace flowing and grace flowing makes it a relationship or if we don't deal with it, it's going to ruin the relationship. Or at best, bump off, bump off of each other's walls of self-protection. So covering shame. When relationships are new, novelty trumps the effects of the fall for a season. Right? It's a love song. I love how you love me. <coughs> Sin tends to lie dormant. With time and tension, it rears its ugly face and the test of the relationship must be passed. Does she really know what I am, how I'm frail, why I tick, what I fear, what I secretly want out of life, why I am fearful, what I'm fearful of revealing? Deep inside all of us is a profound insecurity that if you really knew me, you would reject me. That comes from the fall. Right? We're, li- we're living in a world that, that is uh, a post-Genesis 3 world, and all of us, until we're in Christ, are at war with God. Every human heart knows that. It knows it. Romans 1. They know God. Even though we have all kinds of devices to deny it. In our heart of hearts, we're at war with God. God we know God's at war with us. But we, we deceive ourselves that it isn't so. Um, so if you really knew me, would you... And the, isn't that the beauty of the Gospel? Jesus is the one who, lo- who knows us best, and he loves us most. So, so people sometimes come up to me and say, Mike, I, 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 hate, to, I hate to criticize you, but da, 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 da. Like, don't worry, I spent time with Jesus this morning. He knows everything. He knows the truth about me. <laughs> Cheer up, you're worse than you know. We were going to name our church in Lynchburg. Cheer up, you're worse than you know, Presbyterians. <laughs> you're worse than you know, but you're loved more than you ever know possible. Right? You're far worse than you know. And this is amazing she stuck with me as she met us all this gentleman. 
So, Adam and Eve tried fruitlessly to cover their shame with fig leaves. And you know what God does, right? He says, that ain't going to work. Only I can cover your shame. And there's a symbolic animal kill pointing to the fact that it would be, in fact, the blood of Jesus. So, here's one. Here's one fig leaf. Okay. Um, task. It's easy to hide behind task. Life goes on. There's the earth to cultivate and culture to build. In other words, go to work, raise kids, mow the grass. We've got too much to, to work. We've got too much. We've got too much to do to work on intimacy. What this produces is the widow who says, "We were married 45 years. He worked hard, but I really never knew him. No one ever said on his deathbed, I'd rather spend more time at the office." Except Michael Scott. <laughs> the office. <laughs> no, really, this is a lot of people. He worked hard, he provided for us, didn't know him. Same for dad. Same for dad. Dad worked hard, he provided for us, I didn't really know him. Right? Cats in the cradle. Cats in the cradle. Mm. Haunting song. Oh, who sang that one? Uh, not Cat Stevens. No! Uh, doesn't matter. <laughs> Next, we believe. <coughs> okay. Harry Nelson. Harry Chapin. Harry Chapin. Thank you. Our musician got it. It's always easy to hide behind comforts. So if you've been blessed with comforts and pleasures and wealth, you might think things are okay. What this produces is the extremely rich man who was asked one time, what would you trade for all your millions? He answered, one happy marriage. Beatles sang it, can't buy me love. It's also easy to hide behind niceness because one person was a peace-at-all-costs type. Conflicts were never settled in a way that forged deeper unity. Again, we'll talk about conflict resolution coming up. What could bring you out of hiding? Only a person who knew you thoroughly and still accepted you, and that is Jesus. He'll take the vilest heart and clean it for himself He'll even stay there despite your repeated failures. Jesus isn't going anywhere. That's what a commitment to marriage is revealing. We're discovering things about us that are distasteful, but we're not going anywhere. Jesus has come to your heart to stay. Nothing he, you discover about your, the violence of your sin surprises him. And none of it can cause him to reject you. Same for marriage. So you're revealing the marriage worked out well is revealing the glory of Jesus' love for you and for his church. We get a hint of this in the garden when God announces to the serpent that the seed of the woman will bruise him on the head. Jesus came, born of a woman, to crush Satan at the cross. I think we'll pick up number six next time. And uh, Last questions or thoughts before I pray for y'all. I know I'm doing all the talking, and it's kind of a big class, and it's not really a forum for sharing intimate things, but if you'd like to share a thought, I'm happy to hear it. Yes, Juan? You mean it's easier to treat our brothers and sisters in the yeah, church easier than our spouses? Or like even at work, it's easier to keep it. Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. Sometimes 
the ones we're closest with are the hardest to love. Is that what you're saying? So why is that, class? You know them better, right? If you knew those other people the way you knew your spouse and the way they knew you, it would probably be similar. Any other thoughts on once? Yeah. Yeah, good, good point. So two different contexts. The context in which I said what I said and the context you just described. What you just described is a relationship where one person is never admitting fault. That's one thing. That's toxic, isn't it? And, and the way you avoid that in your marriage is when you have disagreements, you sit down and you talk them through and if you think you're right, you suspend that until you get all the information, you hear the other person, both have had their opportunity to weigh in, and you come to a mutually agreed, Lord willing, solution to that, where one person only yields. Yeah, I now see it your way. That we're trying to avoid the toxic situation you just described, which where there's no humility on the part of one person who never asks for the others, never thinks they're wrong. So what I'm saying, and we'll get to this in conflict resolution, that is, so some of you have the gift of wisdom or the gift of discernment, and you come to you come to see things more quickly than your spouse. That's just the, because God's wired you that way. Fine. If that's the case, if you have that gift, you tend to see that you tend to you know get things. Just put the brakes on and allow that person to catch up and allow there to be discussion, because you might have more things to learn. You might need the perspective of your spouse that isn't in your perspective, even though your perspective on the situation is right. Won't you benefit from hearing them out? So if you're, if you're in a situation where I'm absolutely certain this thing, just put a lid on that. And in love, talk it through, and if that's where you end up, fine. The goal isn't for you to be right or to win. The goal is we're making this decision together, and we're on the same page. If somebody has to yield, that's fine. Are we defining right in different ways, maybe? To you know, you're talking about moral right. Yeah. Do not kill. You know. Yeah. There's nothing to discuss there. Yeah. Right. I mean, We've got a biblical principle of the law. Tie. Decisions that are coming to yes. be made that require different perspectives, Good. as well as different ex life experience, as well as different. Um, yeah. Good. Ex excellent distinction to make as well. So on that note, let me pray for you all. Lord, thank you for my brothers and sisters, for those who are perhaps looking ahead to marriage one day. We pray for them and thank you for them and ask you to give them contentment in their singleness, joy being happily married to Jesus, and bring them in your perfect time, a spouse that is the same. For those of us married, we pray contentment in being happily married to you. And having our hearts filled with the love of Christ, the patience and compassion and kindness, wisdom and winsomeness of Christ, we pray that would indeed flow over 
uh, into our spouse and our children if we have them, so that you would be glorified as the lover of our souls, the forgiver of our sins, the incredibly patient one whose mercies are new every morning. His steadfast love never ceases. Lord, if, if uh, painful wounds are being opened because of this teaching, we pray you'd run quickly with the balm of your spirit and he would uh, comfort, he would tend to those wounds, you'd help people in desperate situations, you'd give humility, you'd give men, us men, uh, the, the grace to be lead repenters, to, to humble ourselves, to lead as Jesus would lead, light, laying down his life for our spouse. So use this class, Lord, uh, for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.